Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined, as ever, by commissioning editor and the podcast's I want to say unchallenged, but I think you've been, cha- you've been, you've been challenged recently, <laughs> Thea, pronunciation guru. I tend to challenge myself within the same sentence. You do. <laughs> You're commendable that way. It's, it's, it, that's very good. Uh, it was the TLS Christmas party this week, which is in typically contrary fashion in January. And Thea, you showed your commitment by being one of only four people who made it back from the office after lunch. It's true. <laughs> and I also heard a story that you ordered a cheese board... I like to bring this back to cheese, if at all possible. A cheese board, and you declined to eat the English cheddar. Oh, Robert told you that. Yeah. He was outraged. I know. Why, I do you, why, 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 why do you hate Britain so much? I still? think I think cheddar's a bit of a bully. Do you? I've had I have had good cheddar, but I, I have other cheeses that I would prefer to. <laughs> Your cheese expertise, I think, is a major quality in this in this whole podcast, there. But uh, you, you turned down the cheddar, which is striking. Uh, before we get to the show, I want to tell you a way to get a cheap subscription to the TLS. You simply Google TLS subscriptions and type pod1 in the offer code tab. You can get six issues for £6. So Google TLS subscriptions and get an offer if you can. Coming up... On the programme, we have a politics and economics special in the tier list this week. The lead piece is a thought-provoking essay on the future of capitalism by Oxford professor Paul Collier, who has some pretty interesting ideas to share with us. Uh, The paper not only touches on American politics, but has a section on American fiction, including reviews of Paul Oster, Michael Chabon and Jonathan Lethem. I've talked to Michael Chabon this week about his new, rather brilliant book, Moonglow, and we will have that for you. And finally, TLS Classics editor and national treasure, Mary the Beard Beard. Can I get away with calling her the Beard? Sounds a bit weird. Yeah. Weird Beard. Weird Beard, weird beard, <laughs> weird. Mary Beard, you know Mary Beard. If I'm allowed to call out, which I'm not, uh, has reviewed a book on the struggles of female intellectuals in the field of classics. We're going to talk about feminism and academia and also women's marches with her. Let's begin with the crisis in late capitalism and its possible solutions. Paul Collier has written an essay in support of the new pragmatism, an approach to politics and economics that avoids the tribalism of left and right and of London-centric maintenance of the status quo. It is the case, as Collier argues, that capitalism as a preferred philosophy now stands alone in the Western world, but it has also emerged into the 21st century with a lot of bumps and bruises. The notion of free market non-interventionism, if it ever existed, which it probably didn't, was dealt a fatal blow by the banking crisis. Any world where profits are private but losses are shared by the taxpayer is one in which the principle of intervention has been grudgingly accepted. Britain today, as with Trump's America, is a divided nation, divided between the capital city and the provinces, the working classes and the despised elites, the liberal supporters of globalisation and the inward-looking section of society who care more about their own communities. Here's a statistic for you. If you look at GDP per capita, only two parts of Britain are wealthier now than they were 10 years ago, London and the South East. There has been, therefore, no shared national recovery. Growth is dependent on borrowing and inflated southern property prices. If you are out of the bubble, you are out in the cold. And as we see in the rise of political movements like Trump, like Brexit, like Le Pen in France, this is not a sustainable situation. So step forward, Paul Collier, with some possible solutions. And Paul joins Thea and me now. Uh, Paul, if we begin at the beginning, is it fair to diagnose a crisis in late capitalism, do you think? I'm, I'm hesitant to being grandiose here. It's not that capitalism is going to collapse. You know, the, 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 the word late capitalism 
is itself a nonsense, I think. Uh, it was used in the 1980s by Marxists to try and say that capitalism was about to collapse. Of course, what actually happened was that communism collapsed. Yeah. So crisis, late capitalism, no. But does capitalism need to reinvent itself? Yes, decidedly. There are quite justified anger on the part of a lot of people who have not benefited from economic growth. On the contrary, they're fearful. For the first time in my lifetime, people now expect their children's lives to be less prosperous, more stressed than their own. Why has a really viable alternative not been put forth? I mean, on a, on a national, if not a global level? I mean, is it simply that we're, we're too entrenched in, in seemingly opposed ideologies? There's a lot in that, actually. I think that there's been some very cavalier elite thinking around globalisation and around, as it were, the triumphalism of London and the triumphalism of the, uh, of the educated. These, these things have to be faced down. So, the, as it were, the, the ideology of globalization, internationalization of society, educated elites around the world becoming a, a common identity, a shared identity, that is going to have to go, I think. We, we had a piece about France uh, in the Christmas issue where it was referred to as hipster socialism, where effectively uh, there used to be the notion of socialism caring about individuals and communities, and then it's shifted to caring about ideas and ideals, and that's not really the world that a lot of people who want support and succor live in. And so the idea of a, sort of a globalised set of ideals in, on the in theory sounds great, but it doesn't answer the call on stagnated wages or a sense of being left out on, on, on what, what, what monetary progress exists? Yes, I mean, the most valuable thing that the bottom half of the population has, the people below median income, so the most valuable thing that they have is that people above median income in their society have a sense of shared identity with those below median income. And I think the people below median income are fearful that the above median income people are sort of running away from that shared identity. Let's look at your ideas, Paul, because you've got several in this piece, and it's a kind of future of capitalism piece. Uh, I think the most interesting to me was on taxation. Traditionally, the left has said tax the millionaires, and the right has said don't do that because it will end aspiration, it will prevent the shareability of wealth, sort of trickle down economics. You think there are millionaires and millionaires. There, is, there are people who are socially useful and wealthy who shouldn't be punished by taxation and people who aren't. It's context that's important in, in your view, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so the, sort of my tax mantra is, is tax the economic rents. Economists use the term rent, meaning it's, it's money that hasn't been earned productively. It comes, the, the rents come at the expense of somebody else or they're effort-free, rather than coming in a way that, that enhances the total pie. And there's just a, a lot of examples of untaxed rents. Ludicrously, at the moment, these unearned rents are taxed more likely than earned income. Uh, the, the classic example would be London property values and land values. Huge gains to people owning London properties and land, and uh, ridiculously, these things have been virtually untaxed. So, you're, you're, um, And how much money could this realise, practically speaking? Are you saying that this is a, this is a, a giant swathe of money that could exist, that if you earn money... It is. I think of London as the new oil. Mm. Oil was a classic example of taxing rents. You know, when you get a, value, uh, a barrel of oil out of the ground, it costs much less to get it out of the ground than it's worth. And the difference between the cost of getting it out of the ground and what you sell it for, that's been rent. And, uh, and now for British oil, North Sea oil, the costs of extraction have gone up and price of oil has gone down. Those rents have basically disappeared. But where the rents exist are fundamentally in London. Some of the rents occur because London's a very valuable agglomeration of activities that really benefit from being brought together. Uh, the city, finance and law. And at the moment, those gains are captured by the people who work in those sectors. 
but a lot of the benefits they get, a lot of the gains are because of things that Britain as a whole over the years has provided, like the rule of law. Uh, that's not an achievement of the City of London. It's an achievement of British people over the last couple of centuries. Or education, I suppose. Or education, yes, absolutely. And so the benefits from the enormously productive agglomeration of law and finance in London need to be spread much more widely. There are big rents in that sector located in London. And so the sector needs to be taxed. So it's partly a plea for for getting taxation specific to the sectors where the big rents are. When you're, when you're talking about this kind of new smart taxation system, you speak of it in terms as a generator of growth, not as what we would think in, term, in social democracy traditionally, we would think that, they, that this, this taxation would lead to the, a better delivery of public services. So I'm wondering in your model, what happens to public services, like, you know, to, to, to choose the most obvious one, the National Health Service? What, what happens to that in your, in your model? I'm agnostic as to how we spend the proceeds of growth, I think uh, the balance between how that's spent by individuals in their own income and social provision, that's not something that I'm particularly concerned about. But we can only get a decent health service if there's enough growth uh, that we can finance it. As soon as we ditch the ideology, we can get a better take on what parts of social provision are provided through a market and what are not. And we've got some ridiculous ideological hang-ups here. And some parts of the health service have been privatized when they shouldn't have been, and a lot of parts haven't been privatized when they should have been. Well, it, it struck me, Paul, actually, that every single political party in England has played its part in partial privatization of the NHS. The Tories have done it, Labour did it under Blair, um, by following on PFI initiatives. The Liberals backed up the Tories' reorganization of the NHS in 2010 uh, to 2012. Um, and the and UKIP say we should privatise the NHS. So this notion that any political party has had nothing to do with privatising the NHS is a, is a false one in its beginning, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a classic piece of sort of uh, stupid ideology. I mean, I live part of the year in France. The French health service seems to be much superior to the British health service. And um, the French have got a good combination where there is compulsory social insurance, but the provision is part state and part private. And you have a choice. Because the private provision is regulated, price controlled, there is no cost difference to the individual in whether you use public or private. Because of that, the public has to be as good as the private. And it is. Uh, there's lots of ideas in, in your piece. We won't be able to get time to get through all of them. But I'm interested in your one about families and single mothers you, you refer to. In your view, I think I've got this right. You tell me if I'm wrong. Political correctness has kind of paralyzed the notion that certain types of families are more productive than others. And in your terms, people should be angry at the existence of single mothers without being angry at single mothers. What, what, exactly so. What, what's, exactly your, what, what's your point there? But also, I suppose, what is to be done about that? What's your practical solution? Yeah, my practical solution, and this has been piloted and shown to work, is that we need a much more hands-on support for the sort of young couples who are likely to fall apart. There's a great virtue in the stability of family life. Single parenthood is not a good idea for the children. Now, we shouldn't stigmatize it, but there has to be somewhere between not stigmatizing it and saying all these lifestyles are equally valid. They're not. Teenage couples who get together and have a child, the instinct of the state at the moment is to be hectoring and rather cavalier in taking the child off the parents, this mantra that it's all the interests of the child first. Overwhelmingly, the interests of children are to stay with parents, but incompetent parents need a lot of hand-holding, and that is very expensive 
in the short term, much cheaper and more humane in the long term. So the main things, as well as, as well as sort of a rejigging of the policy and the thinking, they're the main things are education, family planning, education in relation to, to, to parenting specifically. And the, I mean, these are, these are some of these things anyway, are things that are threatened. We're not quite sure yet how much by, say, the, the, the new US administration. I mean, how do you how do you answer the kind of also the inevitable cries of oh you know the nanny state telling us how to how to raise our um, children etc. I, I describe what I'm trying to do as, as as social maternalism. So paternalism, social paternalism, was quite correctly criticised that this was the you know, sort of the state knows best and the state will replace the parent. Uh, and directly look after the child. That's why we've got so many children in foster care, which is a disaster. Social maternalism is not the nanny state. It's the difference between a mother and a nanny is that when we think of a nanny, we think of somebody bossing around. When we think of of a mother, we think of somebody who actually cares. And so this is not the nanny state bossing around. It's the helping state that is empowering families to do the job that only families can do. I think it's a, it's a fascinating set of ideas. We haven't had time to go through all of them, uh, Paul, but it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting piece. I'm so glad we're, we're publishing it. I encourage everyone to read it because there are other thoughts uh, there as well. Uh, Paul Collier, thank you so much uh, for, for doing that and, and for joining us today. Thank you. What do you make of that fear, that benevolent interventionism? I, I'm fascinated by the idea that we are living in a world where the, uh, the notion of free market capitalism is kind of dead. The banking crisis killed it. And even someone like Trump, who in some ways is a red meat eating, kill the state Republican, mm. still wants to borrow a trillion dollars for large infrastructure mm. projects. So the idea of state interventionism has kind of returned. Mm. And so it feels like Paul is onto something that is kind of zeitgeisty. Wh- whether this all works in practice... That's the great clamour for all these things, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I wonder, I mean, I wonder to what extent we'll, we'll ever see some of these things working in practice because it strikes me that, I mean, his, his, his ideas for taxation are the things that interest me, I think, as well as his, which we didn't get to talk about, his, um, his discussion of the various forms of nationalism. I think that's fascinating. But to come back to taxation, how, are we, how could we, when are we, if we are going to implement that kind of a, a reworking of the whole system if we're still not even getting huge corporations to pay the tax that they owe. Well, indeed, and also you imagine the, the interests involved in this. If you're saying we're going to take money off financial sector lawyers and massive landowners in this country, they're three of the groups of people with the most political heft and authority mm. and they fund political parties. They are responsible for large chunks mm. of British culture in, 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 with a small c. It's hard to see that happening. Mm. And so much of this relies on, on the withering away of, of ideology, bet- you know, the left and the right and us finding this hard centre. And I don't see that how that can happen when, as, as I think Paul Collier points out, uh, the media, for example, are we sell papers on the basis of ideology. Yeah, but what's interesting is the ideology of tribalism, left versus right, is wobbling yeah. because of Brexit. Look at the Labour Party. Two-thirds of uh, people in the Labour Party voted Remain. Mm. Two-thirds of Labour constituencies voted Brexit. Corbyn is completely split down the middle on an issue like Brexit. And isn't it interesting that Corbyn gets no mention in this piece at all because he has... Presumably, he has offered us no viable alternative. I think he probably feels like an irrelevance. Let's shift the ground now to the world of American fiction. Michael Chabon... What do you think? I'm not, I was I was told it was um, Shaben. Shaben. He mentions his. He must know his own name. He does know his own <laughs> name, and I think he does mention it. In, so we'll listen out to how he pronounces. Anyway, Michael's eighth novel is published <laughs> this month. It's called Moonglow. It takes the form of a fake memoir telling the story of an unnamed grandfather who grows up in Pittsburgh, fights in the Second World War, and then struggles to find content in post-war America, along with his wife, who is mentally ill and carries over the burden of a past life connected to a concentration camp. The novel is beautifully, effortlessly written. I reviewed it this week for The Times, as it happens, and we have a longer and better review in this week's TLS by Ben Masters, who finds a rare emotional intelligence at work in the book, alongside perhaps a slight fastidiousness too. When I spoke to Michael, I began by asking him to explain what started him down the road of writing a fake memoir in the first place. It was an unintentional, almost accidental project. I had been planning to write a novel 
Uh, that would be a follow-up to my last book, Telegraph Avenue. And I had some ideas, preparatory reading and research. And it got to a certain point where I felt like, okay, I feel like I've got enough. I sat down and found myself thinking about this family story, this story that my grandfather had told me at least a couple of times over the years about one of his brothers having been fired from his job as a salesman to make room on the payroll for Alger Hiss after Alger Hiss got out of prison. I'm not entirely sure why I was thinking about that story, although I do think it had something to do with my having recently read Dennis Johnson's beautiful short novel, Train Dreams, which uh, kind of narrates an encounter between a um, an ordinary man and Elvis Presley. This is sort of brief passing encounter that they have. Yeah. And, and um, just thinking about my great uncle having had a similar kind of passing encounter with a major arc of American history, I wasn't entirely sure what I was writing about beyond this immediate incident. But then I reached out to that great uncle's daughter and granddaughter, my cousins, and I asked them what they knew about this story, what they had heard about this incident. And my cousin, the one in my generation, said, I've never heard that story. The daughter of my great uncle said, what I heard is that he just came home from work one day and said, you won't believe who's working as an office supply paper salesman, Alger Hiss. Can you believe it? That's what the guy's been reduced to. So then I thought, well, wait, did my grandfather make this up? Because I'm pretty sure that he told me this. Or did I make it up? Did I mishear what he was saying? Did I add this detail about his having been fired? So then I asked my mother, I said, what do you remember about this? She said, what I remember hearing is that Uncle Jack got fired uh, from his job to make room on the payroll for Alger Hiss. So then so then at least I knew I hadn't imagined it. and But then I was faced with this question like, okay, did my grandfather invent this part of it about his brother having been fired? He wasn't that kind of guy. He was not uh, an embroiderer. He was not somebody that, I, I mean, I know people like that. I'm related to them <laughs> on, on, on other parts of my family. He just wasn't like that. He, was, it, he, wasn't in, he wasn't into alternative facts, is what you're saying, Michael. Yeah, exactly. He was not into alternative facts. Is it possible that my great uncle, that's information he wouldn't have shared with his then fairly young daughter, uh, that he had been fired? Or, or was it just that my grandfather got it wrong somehow? I, I don't know. But anyway, that, it was at that point that I realized, oh, there's this... There's something about the way that stories change over time in families, the way they mutate, the way, you know, it ultimately comes to be regarded as what happened in a family is so open to interpretation, open to dispute, in fact. And you know, sometimes no consensus can ever be arrived at. And th that was coming out of fictionalizing this initial incident that I that I sort of recognize where I was fictionally. The book kind of flirts with a, with a, an element of sort of tricksy postmodernism as any sort of fake memoir would, I suppose. But then you are commendably, in my view, straight in terms of the narration. You get the life st story of the man told in recognizable episodes. Was that a deliberate right. thing? You were, you were careful of not being too clever, clever here. You wanted to have a story that kept its heart and kept its, kept its sense of a, of, of a clear narrative structure. Yes. Well, I mean, what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a fake memoir, but I wanted to write a real fake memoir. So like a fake, a fake memoir that beyond its fictional status was not going to be going about winking and advertising its fictional status. Yeah. So write, writing a real fake memoir meant sir, I was going to have to do certain things. For example, the, if I was going to have a, an, an analog of myself as the narrator of this book, then that narrator was going to have my name. I ran into a kind of an issue in a way where with the um, grandparents in the novel, because they aren't my grandparents, they're, they're fictional characters, but you know, in presenting them as my grandparents fictionally, the implication would be, of course, of that would be that these would be my grandparents with my grandparents' names. But when the time came to really try to apply my actual grandparents' names, Ernest and Nettie Cohen, to these fictional characters, it felt completely wrong to do that in a way that I had absolutely no trouble having the narrator be called Mike or even Mike Shaban. Those names are never quite used together, but it's definitely implied that that's what his name would be. You know, that was no issue for me. But to call the parents by these, the grandparents by these actual names felt completely wrong to me. And yet, on the other hand, when I tried to invent fictitious names for these characters, that felt just as wrong. Because yeah. 
these were my grandparents. But at some point, I was I, the only person I was actually interested in tricking was myself. I tricked myself into believing in these characters and in this story and everything that was happening to them, no matter how occasionally a little bit far fetched it might become. Having it be within the framework of a of a memoir and sticking really strictly to that framework was an incredible shortcut for me into belief in my own story. Yeah, I can, and you, and that comes across, I think, when, when you read the book. I want to talk a bit about your your writing style because it, it seemed to me reading it that you've got something, I suppose, approaching sort of perfect pitch at the level of the sentence. You know, there's there's lines in it that you know that that they're rounded off. They have a kind of perfect finish to them. You know, the glandular inevitability of adolescent rebellion. I remember uh, the bleak hours between dusk and inebriation. There's this sort of you you, you catch an idea very completely in, in your sentences. How polished is that for you? Is that something that just sort of flows out of you and you're writing these golden lines uh, straight up, or are you endlessly chiseling away at them? Generally speaking, they emerge. The lines like those that that you quoted and the, and the sentences in general tend to emerge. I would not I would not say fully formed, but with their with their essence pretty clearly settled on. It doesn't always happen on the first draft, though. And sometimes you know it's only on rewriting material that the opportunity for a sentence like that appears to me. And it or even on the third time through it's only at those moments when when the those sentences the best sentences or the strongest sentences emerge but when they do emerge they tend to emerge whole it's not like i sort of chip and chip and chip and yeah. sentence to like get it into its shape uh, how would you address the charge because I, I, the book is uh, as i said beautifully written it's very sensitive to metaphor and, and it really has two prevailing metaphors you kind of have space and rockets and there's this idea of scale models as well i, I think the, the grayness of the of the moon sort of seeps rather beautifully in, into the prose also how would you answer the charge that you're it can become or there's the threat of it becoming too dinky dinky does that have anything to do with the line of model cars that i used to eagerly collect that were made in england when <laughs> yeah, exactly, I was yeah, exactly i'm kind of dinky as the i suppose maybe maybe this is a peculiar english idiom i'm using it's kind of beautifully minutely crafted and shiny and lovely it's not oh, a, like a dinky car yeah like a dinky car it's kind of, yeah <laughs> you know i don't see a real distinction there between the sentences and their the way that they're shaped and what it is i'm trying to say or you know to me the sentences are part of the content for yeah. me. I don't feel that I've gotten insight into a character. I don't feel that I've successfully conveyed a sensory portrayal of a place in all of its sounds and smells and all of that stuff. All the things that I think a novelist is supposed to do to, to ultimately persuade the reader that that he or she is in this moment, in this time, in this character's mind, experiencing what the character is experiencing. I don't feel like I've done those things unless I've gotten the sentences right. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's a similar charge could be could be leveled against Updike writing in his prime. You know, the writing is is so well rendered that you could almost look at it at the level of the sentence, and it becomes a slight distraction from the emotional core of, of the book? First of all, I feel like I, I write a different in a different style for every book and that, in, in that the content of the book, the nature of the book, who the characters are, who the narrator is, the world of the book, the, which is some kind of combination. So like the milieu, it's a combination of period and, and form and all of those things helps shape and determine the language of the individual sentences and the style of the sentences that they go together. And with this book, you know, I was so conscious of, I mean, there's a sort of a double narrative structure in that it's, it's the grandfather's narration of his life and his perceptions of his life as filtered through the narrator's perception of what he's hearing from his grandfather and then the narrator's voices you're getting a sort of a double voice yeah. in a way but because i was trying to represent you know especially in sections where you are in the grandfather's direct point of view even though you know it's being filtered sort of implicitly through the narrator i was really aware of his consciousness as an engineer as a man of few words as a, a as a highly observant man who notices everything is constantly kind of processing everything and i felt like that pushed me into a kind of precision with language that 
you know, didn't keep, it didn't allow me to get too lyrical. And when that, when I did get lyrical, then it was going to be justified to a degree by the fact that it is being filtered through the, through the consciousness of this grandson. And like a lot of your books, the Second World War obviously plays a part in it. And you've, you've, I think you've said on in several interviews, it's always been an imaginative kind of spark or resource for you. Uh, but with with your previous book, you moved away from that, and you're we are now living, as the phrase goes, in interesting times. You're living in a country that is probably going to change very quickly over the next few years with its new political leadership. Are you uh, considering responding to the changes in, in, in political America? We've got a piece, actually, in the TLS week about how it's the end of the American century, the century that brought America into control over the development of the world, the First and Second World Wars, you know, the end of isolationism, where Americans set the tone for the whole century. The end of the American century has now arrived with the advent mm. of Donald Trump. Does that give you, does that excite you as a novelist or are you concerned about being yet another well-educated liberal novelist who's going to rail against Trump when the world is full of people like that already? Um, I'm much more of a ruminator and a backward looker. And um, as a backward looker, what better material to look backward on if in fact we are at the end of the American century? And, and I certainly don't think that's, that doesn't sound at all impossible. In fact, I might agree with that statement. But in that case, I have this incredible, almost bottomless source of material, of stories and narratives to look back on that could last me easily for the rest of my life. So what so, you're saying, you're not going to produce a dystopian novel about a strange, tiny-handed narcissist uh, <laughs> ruling America to, in, in, over the next four years? <laughs> that is not my thing. No, I'm not a satirist at all. There is very little lasting value, I think, in writing about one's immediate circumstances, one's immediate sort of, uh, in fiction, I mean, yeah. in nonfiction, it's very different. But in fiction, to sort of produce a, a sketch, in a sense, of the moment one is living in is, I don't think it's necessarily the best recipe to, if you're, if you're hoping that your work might continue to resonate for readers on down the line. That's a fascinating point. I think we, we know, what is there going to be a great Brexit novel in Great Britain? Is there going to be a great Trump novel in America? And you have to imagine that if there is going to be one, it'll take place over the next 20 years or 30 years. It's going to be a very hard trick to play to be writing in the midst of it and come up with something lastingly great, I would imagine. Yes, writing in the midst of it is certainly nothing that I'm any good at whatsoever. Uh, we've got to uh, leave it, uh, Michael. I could talk for ages. What's next for you? Are you uh, uh, already churning out acres of prose or are you uh, reclining on a sun lounger, sipping Mai Tais and taking a breather? Uh, yes, that it, the latter. Uh, in fact, here comes my next Mai Tai right now. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I am taking a little break. I've been working pretty much nonstop for about 10 years now on one thing or another. And this is the first time in that period that, that I haven't actually owed someone something immediately upon finishing another project. So I am lying fallow at the moment. And I have a few thoughts about what the next thing might be, but nothing definite yet. And I'm going to wait a little bit longer before I jump in again. Well, as you know, I reviewed the uh, review Moonglow for the Times, and it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a really wonderful piece of work, and uh, it's a great pleasure to, 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 to read it, and great pleasure to talk to you uh, now, Michael. For me too, Stig. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That's Michael Chabon there, a, a really nice uh, man, and it's a great book. Uh, honestly, I, I, I don't gush that much about novels, and I really did. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Enjoy Moonglow. Let's move on. Mary Beard, Cambridge classicist, TLS classics editor, luncher with Brexiteering demagogues and all-round good thing, has reviewed a book entitled Women Classical Scholars. It tells the story of the struggles and successes of women intellectuals from the Renaissance to the 20th century, focusing on the field of classics. The path towards equality is, of course, a rocky one and has not led to unequivocal success. We've seen only this week an outpouring of objection and anger on the part of women in the form of the various marches that took place across the world. More than three million people were involved, inspired by the election of a US president who bragged about committing sexual assault with impunity and among whose first acts was to withdraw US funding from NGOs who provide abortion services. So while we might start this conversation in the shady halls of academia, we may end it on the streets of Washington and London. Mary Beard joins Thea and me now. Mary, just to focus on the book to begin with, is this optimistic? Is this an optimistic account of how women have, against all odds, succeeded over the years in a male-dominated profession like classics? <laughs> combination i mean there's you know there's plenty of the usual gloomy stories about really smart women who just could never make it in the way they wanted to do but i think what's optimistic about it is the way that it does actually manage to recapture some of the forgotten achievements of women and also and that this was the thing that i think struck me most it manages to recapture the sheer enjoyment that women in the past maybe ones who didn't get on in our terms but the sheer enjoyment they had out of an engagement with the classical world so in, in that way it's optimistic i mean i, I don't think there is a a, a, a story of uh, women's engagement in academia you know, before the 20th century that um is a wholly happy one but there are there are good sides and optimistic sides in this book it's interesting how translation has been so fertile a ground or effective tool for women, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that comes over very strongly is how women were absolutely crucial interpreters of the classical world in translation. What the book concentrates on is their translation of ancient literature. And there's some wonderful stuff about the different ways they engage with translating things like Sappho with um, uh, a particularly interesting, sexualized, gendered reading or not. It made me think how important women have been in translating modern works of classical scholarship. I mean, I remember when I was working on the famous classicist, Cambridge classicist, Jane Ellen Harrison and her then friend, Eugenie Sellers, who were working in the late 19th century in classics. They got into the field by translating not just works of ancient literature, but but German works of classical scholarship. So translation, uh, I think, is a very important way of women inserting themselves. Mm, well, I mean, in many ways, it's about re- revising or rebalancing historical accounts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think translation is a, is a two-edged sword, you know, because in some ways, you know, although I think we, we at TLS have done quite a lot to revalue it as a skill, yeah. it still seems very much <laughs> the handmaidenly thing to do. You know, yeah. you are uh, translating the words of somebody else for a new audience. You're, a, in a sense, you're a servant. Now, I mean, I think what's what is interesting is, of course. 
noticed that anybody who does any translation knows quite how wrong evaluation that is. Mm. And I was very struck when I was looking at what my women were doing in translating these German blokes' work. Quite often, they were correcting it, they were improving <laughs> it, they were making it better. Translation was a very positive and active thing to be doing. What do you think the current position now for female academics, you're obviously a, a very senior academic in Cambridge, is there a level playing field, do you think, if this book were to be written in a hundred years' time about the 21st century world of classical scholarship, or indeed scholarship more generally, what would, the, what would be the heft of what it was, would say? Um, I think there's a leveler playing field than there was, and I think it would be terribly dishonest of me not to say that actually in the course of my professional career, there has been a dramatic change, really dramatic change. And, you know, for a time, I was the only woman university lecturer in my faculty. And now we're almost in double figures. <laughs> um, you know, that has to be progress. It has to be better. It isn't a world of, you know, one or two women and a load of guys who are really running things. It's, so it has changed. But the idea that it's a level playing field, even if it's leveler, I think is it can't possibly be true. I think we've done a huge amount, and I think that you know it, it doesn't behove us to be too gloomy, but we just have to remember there's more to be done. Is it also fair to say, though, that women are sort of expected to, whereas men are expected to kind of uphold the existing, you know, the, the faculty and, 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 and the field and to kind of enrich it, women are sort of expected to change it, do something, be the exception? I mean, that's not what I've found myself. I mean, I think that I've more found that women are expected to play quite female roles within the academy. Now, sometimes that can be slightly wackier, you know, because women are always kind of can be dangerously wacky. So, you know, there is a, a sort of, uh, you, know, you know, a pressure to a bit on the radical side. But much more, you know, it's a pressure to be nice. It's a pressure to look after the students. Well, I think the students should be looked after. Um, but the idea of pushing women into the caring side of academia when the men aren't doing that so much, I think is something that you you'd find almost any of my female colleagues would talk about yeah. who is going to be uh, the tutor, who is going to be uh, the handholder. Which kind of mirrors society more generally, I think. Well, well, well let's move it broader than the academy then. So let's talk about the protests this week, the, the, the women's marches, three million, uh, I think, just across America, 100,000 in London. Did you support them, Mary? Did, were you tempted to go on them? Do you think the message behind them was clearly articulated and comprehensible? Uh, yeah, I was very tempted to go, and I, I feel quite a, you know, a, a lazy old thing that I actually sat in Cambridge on that Saturday and was going on writing my book. Um, but both my children, one male and one female, went on them, and I felt very positive about it. I thought there was a, an interesting reaction to it in terms of presenting as, at least, oh, this is a very kind of white middle-class movement. Well, you know, yeah, maybe it was, you know, but sometimes, just occasionally, the white middle-class have got it right. Um, and the, I think one can't tick them off too much for protesting in their own terms. But I thought beyond that, I thought it was an absolutely classic case of women's political action getting downgraded. Now, th these weren't marches that were only attended by women, but they were very much a signal that was being organised and not run by women, as being for and on behalf of women. And I thought absolutely predictable. You know, when, you, when you've got women organising, getting together, doing something, it's not surprising to me that those efforts get undermined. Well, let's talk about an example of that, Mary, because Piers Morgan, the self-promoting set of wobbling tonsils that he is, uh, tweeted this about the marches. I'm planning a men's march to protest at the creeping global emasculation of my gender by rabid feminists. Who's with me? Uh, have you ever been? What do you make of that, Mary? Have you ever been called a rabid feminist? Oh, lots of times. You know, badge I wear with pride. <laughs> well, I think you know someone like Piers Morgan, and there's plenty of them, need to take a bit of a, a bit of a lesson in how power works. Have to think harder about the way power is differentially distributed, and therefore the way 
different forms of protest must operate differently. You know, it's like saying, I mean, I think this was the estimable Simon Jenkins saying in The Guardian a bit ago, and I much admire a lot of what he said. He he quoted with disapproval somebody talking about some aspect of um, power of the media as as being um, outrageously white or something, and saying, you know, nobody would say this was outrageously black. Uh, now, you know, actually, you have to think that language engages differently in a power structure where some people are not actually themselves fighting on a level playing field. It is quite okay, I think, to say this is outrageously male, this is outrageously white, when the power structure usually excludes those people. Now, you know, in some ways, as I said, I thought that that can be unfair simply to knock the Women's March because it was... It is said, and I've got no idea how anybody really knows this, you know, very white and middle class seems to me to be unfair. It can be right and white, but we've got to bear those things in mind. You know, you know Piers Morgan just sort of think harder, I think. But the, I mean, one of, the, one of the placards I saw more often than not, I mean, certainly, yeah, one of the most common ones was just a very simple one that said, this isn't about women's rights, this is about human rights. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of the things that women have always fought for um, they present as about women, and I think they are, in a sense, differentially focused that way. But nonetheless, this is, what feminism was and is about is not just about giving more to women. It's about changing the basis of society and our culture in a way that benefits everybody. Saturday was, was a men's march. If Piers Morgan wanted a march, it was a men's march. It was a women's march. It was an everybody's march. It's just how you how you define it and whether you get stuck on ridiculous agendas. I think the only, cause I, inter- I actually interviewed the what, the leader of the Women's Equality Party about the march on Sunday, and I, and I, I said to her, you know, what was the what, if you could crystallise the aims of it, what would it be? And what struck me, and you might say, Mary, this is a good thing, but I just wonder whether it it dilutes the message a bit. She was saying, oh, it's about women's issues, women being able to, to, to not be bothered to, to retain control over their body, you know, the, the, the sort of the crazy anti-abortionism of Trump and all of that, which seemed very coherent to me. And then she said, it's also about immigration. It's also about getting a fairer Brexit. <laughs> uh, and I, that to me, because maybe what you were saying, maybe that's good, because feminism is kind of infusing an idea of equality across a wide range of issues. But I guess from a campaigning point of view, there's a danger it slightly dilutes into all sorts of different <laughs> things. Church. Well, I don't know. We're, I mean, uh, I, you know, I can't speak for the Women's Equality Party, but I think that dilution isn't necessarily bad. And you can hardly call, really, anyway, one day of marching under a banner of gender, gender as widely defined as you could like it, make it. You could hardly call that a diluted message. It was a rather powerful message. Now, there are all sorts of sub-messages and complexities in there, and I don't think that's to the bad. But I, mean, I, I do think that feminists and reformers and liberals can be a bit too breast-beating about this. You know, it's like, it, it, it's a bit like saying there's still an awful lot to do in terms of women's equality and women's rights. Yes, there is, but don't forget, we've done some damn good things. We've come a hell of a long way. And we did have a series of marches in which three million people got out in the world. You know, you can be, a, you know, a bit celebratory about it. Well, one of the great signs was the people dressed as suffragettes and they said, same shit, different century. <laughs> Which I thought was quite fun, but from your point of view, you make an argument that although there is a lot of problems still and it's right to march, you should reflect that their things have got better. Yeah, I mean, that's why I find the whole kind of Trump agenda and also bits of the Brexit agenda, the nostalgic, backward-looking, you know, make, make America great again. Well, when, when was this? You know, when, uh, you know, when blacks didn't have rights? Mm. And the obviously... Radical political reform depends on us being dissatisfied, and it's absolutely right to be dissatisfied. But we also have to reflect sometimes that you know I'm you know I'm much much happier to be a woman alive in 2017 than to think of going back to my mother's generation. Well, let's leave it there on that positive note, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for doing this review, and it's a great pleasure to talk to you as ever. Pleasure. Here's a striking statistic, uh, considering this march was about Trump in lots of ways, particularly in America. 
54 53 mm. of white women voted yeah, for Trump. Say that. It's fast, <laughs> but that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I don't, and so, how many of those women on that march were Trump voters? Presumably, you got to imagine none of them, and mm. yet statistically, that seems. Mm. Relatively mm. unlikely. Well, it's like what what Mary was saying just now about the message being diluted, whatever the message is. Certainly, my experience on Saturday was it was a very it was a multiplicitous message. There were so many. And and that's a good thing. for every. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. You know, there were some people chanting for certain things that I didn't agree with. Uh, for me, it wasn't so much about overthrowing Trump. He's been elected. I don't think it's particularly useful to call for him to be impeached until he has good reason to be impeached. For me, it was very much just about, as I said, advocating for human rights and saying, you know, don't don't forget how far we've come, what Mary was saying. Don't forget how far we've come. And did you enjoy it? Did you come away thinking, would you come away feeling positive or negative? Um, I came away feeling positive that so many of us had gone and done this on our Saturday. I think it should happen a whole lot more. I felt sad because I spoke to many people who said, oh, yes, I, I meant to go. I, I wished I'd gone. And that's no excuse to me. Well, then you should have gone. Yeah, I suppose I came away feeling feeling good. There were some excellent signs. There were some great <laughs> excellent signs. Excellent signs. And I find modern signage one of the great triumphs. Brit- of, I think of, the, of the British age. are particularly good at it, though. I mean, yeah. there were some astounding ones. There was, there was one that, you know, was, was about, um, you know, thou shalt not mess with my with my reproductive rights and then there was the reference given fallopians I quite like girls just want to have fundamental human rights, rights. Yeah. that was that was funny there were some good and my favorite guy is a guy who does it it's now become a meme it's a not a sign guy but geez He's a guy who walks around saying, I'm not much of a sign guy, but geez. And the, the understated ironic sign, I think, is a, is a great development. Develop, someone... There's also a sausage dog dressed as a, uh, as a peach, which was quite good, and it said sort of impeach him. Oh. See, if you... Very creative. But, and, 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 clever. and that's a good thing. Yeah, I, thought, I, I did think that. And that's almost all we have time for this week. Let me thank, on behalf of Thea and me, Mary Beard, Michael Chabon, and Paul Collier. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and important cultural ideas. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've been discussing, plus Jim Campbell on the literary narcissism of Paul Oster, Rebecca Asher on the perils of American parenting, Pankaj Mishra on the end of the American century, Margaret Drabble on encounters with Anne Bronte, Nancy Campbell on why poets write letters, and Adam Mars-Jones on the two films Jackie and Manchester by the Sea. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new pieces from TLS writers, including Rodri Lewis on how to use Shakespeare to understand Trump, Michael Saylor on literary fandoms, like our very own Toby Lichting on Eamon McBride. That's unfair, isn't it? <laughs> you laugh, though. And Joyce Carol Oates answers 20 questions, and this was featured in the Daily Mail's diary of all places. She judges her least favourite fictional character to be, I'm quoting here, our newly elected US president, an overblown, unconvincing stereotype of a buffoon-slash-bloviator-slash-conman-slash-psychopath, crudely plagiarised from absurdist French playwright Alfred Jarry's Ubuwah. Have you read Ubu Wa? We had a huge piece about it a couple of years ago. Really? So you I'll actually... refer you to the archive. So you're familiar with that? Yes. Clever. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and do review us on iTunes if you can. And please join us next week where we're going to be talking about the tragedy of mass incarceration, a giant piece commissioned by you, Thea. Yes. Uh, until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.